welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point, because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Immediate shout out to a loyal listener who we heard from a little birdie was just ranting and raving about Girl on the Gov. And shall I say we are blushing? Literally. Hi, Marella Roberts. We love you too. <laughs> Literally freaking Zach told us the story, which by the way, guys, if you are none of these people, go listen to our episode with said Zach, which is Zach Malamud. He was running for George Santos's seat and now has gotten behind Tom Swazi, who we also have an episode with when he was running for governor. So, you know, just we keep it all in the family here, apparently, at Girl on the Gov. Oh, yeah. And Zach also is behind this organization that he founded called The Next 50, which looks to bring new people into the fold to run for office, all of the things in the democratic space. So all of the good people are coming together. And like we said, a little birdie, well, we named the little birdie, told us a really cute story. And we're obsessed with you. We're obsessed. It's fine. We're fangirling. We're obsessed. We hear you work for Cory Booker and just sign in our DMs. Let's talk because we'd love to have your boss on the show. And we would just love to meet you, period, because the little message we got just really made our made our days, made our weeks, made our months, made our year. And that's we just love you guys. We love all of you. But we love when we hear those stories from people of like just our listeners in the wild. Obsessed. The Govers in the wild. Because guys, we have not found a better name for ourselves. We are just the Govers. It is what it is. You know, again, if anyone wants to take any creative liberties and has found a good, you know, a good fan name for us, let us know. But let us know. The struggle is real. But the honestly, who the struggle is the realest for is the House and Senate GOP right now. It's pretty crazy. But like, um, it's still yeah. nothing that surprises me. You know, I just become numb at this point. No, literally same. However, it's still just, how do I even put this into words? The bar just keeps getting lower. You know what I mean? Like once I the think, bar, yeah. oh, we've hit the basement. We're six feet under. No, we are like digging. We're at the earth's core. Okay. I will say Chuck Schumer had a really funny tweet. Do you want me to read it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Wait. I, I genuinely dropped my phone when I saw it because I was L-O- Elling, but I really think that the appropriate phrase to put with it is that I chuckled because get it, Chuck Schumer. Because Maddie Good just rolled one. her eyes at me so hard. I don't think eyes have rolled harder in someone's head. I wasn't rolling my eyes. I was uh-huh. going like this. Yes, like agreeing. Like nice pun, nice one. That was mm-hmm. what that was, but that's what they. I guess all you have to say. go watch on YouTube and dissect it yourself. Oh yeah, let us drop it in the comments. Is Maddie rolling mm-hmm. her eyes at me, or is she just acknowledging what I'm saying? Or am I just in solidarity with your joke? Honestly, I really do need to build a coalition of supporters for my jokes. <laughs> you do. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You and all Thank of you. the dads out there. With the dad jokes. Anyways, back to chuckling. He goes, 
It's like House Republicans looked at the wildly embarrassing day Senate Republicans had and thought, you know what? We can trump that. There it is again, folks. Mm -hmm. A dad joke from the dad himself. The dad. Literally, Um, you balance father's dad. Grandfather. Yeah, I mean... Again, the bar is She's so speechless. low that I just, like, <laughs> genuinely, I have nothing to say anymore. Like, to me, this, like, doesn't even feel ba- as bad as what I've seen. You know, the bar is just so well, low, but it's terrible. I will say, as much as we could go down the rabbit holes of this failed impeachment situation, which is embarrassing for Mike Johnson, I love when Mike Johnson's embarrassed, even if it's just... More Mike Johnson embarrassment, please. I mean, he just has such a little... He's such a dweeby... Sweeney little vibe about him. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I lost my push cart. Where was it going with this? Oh, I remember. Is just a reminder that there is actually some good governance out there, even if you don't see it, even if it's not happening at like some of the federal level. We just did an episode with our friend Debbie at the New Deal all about this and like how important good governance is and how there are places where government is very much functioning. The fact that we're even in this space in the way that we are is proof of that. So, mm-hmm. Even if you're seeing a lot of crazy stuff and we're reacting to it, like, please keep in mind there is good shit happening. That's why in our GovHub newsletter, we do have that good news bears section where we literally highlight accomplishments in the political space. And we had an episode with two Vermont state reps who talked about bipartisanship and some good governance there at the state level. So, yeah, it's it's important to remember good governance during an election year when all of this political BS that's happening at the federal level is happening because it can just make you very apathetic and frustrated. But there's good stuff happening down to the local and state levels. But let's not forget when good governance was also happening at the federal level, and that's when Democrats had control of Congress. So we passed massive, large pieces of legislation with our little trifecta that we had and just let us not forget that like that's the world that's the stuff we can accomplish when we vote and that's my lesson for today thank you so much for coming oh my god professor oh my god wow and i thought this was syllabus week who are we (laughs) my god oh yeah and happy nevada primary day i wonder who's gonna win yeah that's gonna be a real shocker don't know couldn't tell you couldn't take a wild guess oh wait we already know it's fine we already know. um speaking of inevitables i now have been icing my fucking foot slash achilles heel for the last how many days and i just feel like talking about how the shoe that did this to me was a sneaker. A sneaker. Listen, we don't need to get into this. I feel like you have bad sneakers. Perhaps they're, your shoes are sparkly aren't. though. Oh, that okay. You just there it is, folks. She's wearing sparkly sneakers like hurt her foot. Clearly, they're not the comfort that we're talking about. So Samantha clearly has a shoe choosing problem. However, where I'm really going with this, though, besides, obviously, theme of the show being that I have the most stylish collection of shoes. Stylish? Of, age, of I mean. course. 
Mm-hmm. But don't try to um, come for me and said that you went for comfort and then you got hurt because of it because I don't think you really I did. did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get into this episode, I just need to do a quick, quick shout out to Miley Cyrus because I watched the Grammys and when I tell you that like I was jumping for joy in this living room, like mm-hmm. every time she won – it's just been such a long time coming for us as smilers and um I seriously like felt as if I won the award too like it was just it was for all of us and I'm just so proud of her and so happy happy for her and her energy was just like everything and I just had to say that her dress was sick all of her dresses and looks were amazing I only saw the like what she walked the red carpet in did she have like another one yeah, she changed like six times. <laughs> it was so many, but she deserves oh it. That's and... a day in the life for me. Right. This is, yeah. There you go. We know I'm really going for the fashion and most of that. Although, like, mm-hmm. I do love good music as opposed to watching movies. Tracy Chapman, Luke Combs. I have Obsessed. watched the clip of that performance. I can't even tell you how many times. It was gorgeous perfection, them together. She's iconic. The fact that she's at the top of the iTunes chart right now, speechless. I'm so happy for her. It's It's amazing. Possibly like the best song ever. And totally. I've had like, I think we probably all have had eras with it. Like I Mm -hmm. grew up listening to it because my parents and like a few of her songs. And then in college, me and my friends like became like weirdly obsessed with her and like fast car and just had like a college era with her music and then now like luke just bringing her back to life like his cover is truly incredible and was like my top to listen song topped top listen song of the year last year and then seeing them together was just euphoric obsessed no like i want to see that duo together doing that song and other things again and again i really world tour just for that song (laughs) <laughs> no someone made like the joke of like this is how we saw world pieces these two and i was like honestly kind of yes 100%. like and then looking to the audience like one of the clips and not only do you see like taylor but you see like jelly roll and like this other man that it, I, the I don't song know touches who he is everybody the everybody two of them were just it. fucking wrong everybody boys were oh so fucking golden good all of the things so that was honestly like my biggest takeaway like i saw that and i just kind of like went spirals on it i do think i will say this the minus miley the outfits generally speaking were really bad this year like i was i felt like somebody went crazy that like taylor still does not dress right and then she's like whatever style is she's had forever is just so terrible and love her but like jesus christ like she looks Bad. bad almost always like almost always always she looks bad and it's which like, is such a shame. Right. It's a waste. It's like, I mean, look, if that's really she's her stunning. style and she's, she's being like, this is like who I am and how I'm doing it. And like maybe say she didn't have a stylist, but she was just like, this is my expression. Hey, that's one thing I don't have to like what you wear. But if you have right. like all this access in the world to the best of the best, like, are you kidding me? The amount of interesting fashion that you could do and her tour costumes are phenomenal. So, like, where are we missing right. you know the what? link? Yeah, I take that back. Like, her tour stuff, like, is mostly really good. Like, really good and looks really good and flattering on her. But just 
The girl, it's I mean, boring. It's some weird. of her streetwear has been okay lately, but it's no, still not great. No, it hasn't. It's some, there's some that's been like just kind of cute and normal. And then there's some that are like so bad. And it's just like, it's giving middle school horse girl. Like that's most famous girl in the world. And you can't put together like a chic, cool streetwear outfit. And then obviously red carpets are just always terrible. But yeah. Although I did, and this is such a random person, it's like Zach Bryan's girlfriend, Brianna Chicken Fry. I really liked her dress. Maybe not necessarily for the event, but I liked the dress for something. She looked good. That's, Madison Beer yeah. also looked really good. It was like definitely oh, like see. a wedding dress, but it was really pretty. And she looked pretty because she is pretty. Anyways, Anyways, let's get into some politics. Let's do it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, you guys, we have done a ton of repro episodes over the, the span, the tenure of Girl on the Gov. Because what has been under attack, what rights have been taken away continually our reproductive rights, you know, just little important thing, whatever. And this episode is going to bring you up to speed on where we're at now, like what we're facing, what is the battle ahead for 2024? Like, what about the GOP coming for birth control? Like all these avenues that have been a part of sort of this long game plan from the ultra, you know, far right conservatives in terms of abortion and reproductive care, we're getting into it. And we're getting into it with the CEO and president of Reproductive Freedom for All, which I literally, we even joke at the start of this episode, I literally thought it was called, it used to be N-A-R-A-L. So if you've seen that places, I literally used to thought, think it was called Narwhal and that there was like a, just a W in it. May it be known, I was not the only person that thought this. Yeah, no, I yep. definitely have had that thought as well. Because they are really like, they're really a powerhouse when it comes to reproductive freedom and the fight. And I see them everywhere. And I always was like, Narwhal. I mean, nope. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a rebrand and we'll talk about that too. So we can get totally. into it. But anyways, we have Minnie on the show today and we're going to get into it. So without further ado, here's Minnie. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. If you work in the political space, listen up. Here at Girl on the Gov, we have built our whole business around effectively marketing political messaging through digital media. And we want to help you do the same. We have a full digital media consulting menu these days, tailored specifically to the political space. Number one, hashtag viral. It is our paid social media newsletter that comes straight to your inbox every Tuesday. If you've ever thought uh, this meeting could have been an email, this newsletter is for you. We give basics to best practices, platform updates, and the content ideas you need to go hashtag viral. And for offering number two, if you want some one-on-one face-to-face attention, we offer that too. We provide social media audits and consulting to help you achieve the conversions and engagement you've been hoping for from your social media content. And number three, in our newest edition, Podcast Consulting, we are the minds behind this gorgeous political podcast for young voters that we've been running for two and a half years now. So we know a thing or two about how not only to get a podcast off the ground, but how to grow an audience. 
We provide podcast consulting for anyone trying to get their podcast started or provide podcast audits for those who have started their pod but want to see it take off. Podcasting is a great new in-house digital media marketing tool and a great way for any candidate elected or org to amplify their work and their voice. So head to girlonthegov.com slash consulting to learn more about our services and to sign up for hashtag viral to start slaying the beast that is digital media. Skeptical about custom beauty? I get it. My feed is flooded with customized this and personalized that, all promising to fix my split ends and my dry skin and all of the things. But when pros says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. And your formula literally couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair care and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals, and they get personal. Pro's covers everything from diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They even asked me about, you know, where I live, the water hardiness that I have coming from my shower, UV index, all of the things. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing premixed, nothing off the shelf. And I know from experience, one-of-a-kind formulas equal one-in-a-million results. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed that my hair is... Definitely fuller. I have thinner hair that just like will not hold a curl or stay voluminous. And ever since using pros, that has changed. But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering an exclusive trial offer. So you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash girlandgov. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash G-I-R-L-A-N-D-G-O-V for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash girl and gov. Okay. So let's be so real. This year is a very scary year, but also very exciting year for reproductive rights and where we're going with everything. So naturally, we had to have you on the show and you are the president of Reproductive Freedom for All, which used to be, okay, let me also back this up. I literally envisioned for whatever reason over the years that there was a W in narwhal, narwhal, and I kid you not, anytime I would talk about the organization, I'd be like, yeah, narwhal. And everyone would look at me like I had 10 heads. And I was like, oh, yes, I am. Just You're not sick. alone. <laughs> so I'm not sure where I put the W, where it came from. It was a gift from someone. But regardless, we've been always excited about what you guys are doing and know you are such yeah. a good voice to talk about this issue. But for those that aren't familiar with what you guys do, can you just like run us through a little bit about the organization and what your work focuses on? Yeah, that thanks for that. Um, we are over 50 years old. It's, it's so for the just a fun fact on the narwhal thing, you're not alone. It happens all the time. <laughs> when we switched our brands and our names, we thought about having like an error page with a picture of a narwhal. And I narwhal go back from to my elf. team. That's what I think of. 
I'm going to have to go back to them and be like, you guys, you really, you really got to find a way to put a normal in there for like <laughs> hat tip to the old fans out there. We were started originally. So now we're reproductive freedom for all. And I can talk about how we got there um, a little bit for anyone who's like a brand and message nerd in your audience. But we started as the National Association to Repeal Abortion Laws. So that was the original name. And this was pre-Roe. So when you think about it, there were a ton of anti-abortion laws in the books in the mm -hmm. late 60s and, you know, 50s and 60s. And we were set up to repeal those laws. Then post-Roe, which was a big accomplishment for, you know, our founders, which included a lot of, you know, badass early feminists, including Shirley Chisholm, you know, we became the National Abortion Rights Action League. Because even though Roe was the law of the land, there was still a lot of work to do on abortion access, as we know. Like, that's why all yeah. of our orgs have existed well before Dobbs, right? Even though some folks might be dialing in only now that Roe's gone, many of us knew with even with Roe as the law, we were having a lot of challenges. So over the years, we went through different brand iterations. Uh, after National Abortion Rights Action League, our president, Kate Michaelman, who really kind of took the org to another level, decided to start calling us Iral Pro-Choice America. So almost like sort of the NAACP just uses the acronym, I mean, just uses the letters and doesn't use the full explanation or the original name, right? Because some of it's dated. They The shift was to message pro-choice, right? And the pro-choice message frame was very popular and effective in the beginning. We kept that. We kept that for a very long time until this past uh, September 2023, when we rebranded Reproductive Freedom for All and that was in part because our organization started doing really significant research um, and shifting from this life choice binary, which had started to you know, not be as effective, to a reproductive freedom frame. So thinking about it instead of a choice as the freedom to decide, the freedom to decide if women have a family. And it was resonating across our demographics. It resonates with independents and Republicans, but it also resonates with folks like you and me, right? Because we know for so long, for so many people, particularly folks in the margins, you know, they didn't have a choice. They didn't, if they didn't have access, if they didn't have resources, if they weren't in a state without, you know, significant restrictions, they were stuck. So reproductive freedom is not just a positive message that aligns to a broader range of Americans. It's more reflective of our values. And especially post-Dobbs, where folks in most of the country do not have choices. So that's the evolution of our name. And we, we thought we'd have a little bit of a drop-off and our subscribers and our followers since then, but it's been really positive and I think it's resonating with folks. We love a good rebrand. That's our whole, whole <laughs> MO. So very into it. Well, <clears throat> you've also been in this fight for 20 years, you know, like what really made you jump into this work and what's what's the origin story there? Uh, thanks for asking. So I'm from Texas. So that's, that's probably a big explanation. You know, my <laughs> parents immigrated to this country in the late 60s. And I grew up mostly in the tech in the Houston, Texas region. And, you know, as a young, and then I went to college at Berkeley. So I, I, I was probably a little bit radicalized just for being an immigrant kid in the Houston suburbs, very conservative community, very Christian, um, very evangelical. I remember in high school having to explain to kids that I wasn't Christian, that my family was Hindu uh, and having a very well-intentioned classmate or two try to save me. You know, so I already had sort of an initial sort of gut, you know, visceral reaction to all things, you know, evangelical. And that sort yeah. of primed me for my college experience where I got a, a much more educated on, you know, the history of feminism in this country, but worldwide. And I'd also say as a kid, I spent every summer going to India, visiting my family. And I had an auntie, my mother's sister-in-law, who was a feminist activist in India. 
And their bodily autonomy, and there's a lot of issues with the women's movement and women's rights in places like India. So I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. But one of the areas that we don't have a conflict is abortion access. And we don't, you know, it's a state sanctioned and funded, you know, family planning services are funded and abortion access is for everybody there. It's just not the same Judeo-Christian framework. It's not the same stigma. So going to college and realizing, you know, when I was sexually active, that there were so many limitations, even in California, on what I could access, how I could access it, what information I was getting, and how much I just did not learn as a kid in Texas. How yeah. much information were just taken away from me, right? Started me on the on the path. And as I became more and more active in politics, as a young person in organizing, and my gateway to that was immigrant rights for, you know, a lot of personal reasons, I started to realize the through line between, you know, the conservative movement, movement attacks on race, attacks on affirmative action, attacks on immigrants, and the use of that movement of women uh, as a, and bodily autonomy as a wedge issue to really, you know, suppress a lot of our communities. So when I had a chance after in the beginning of my career to go work at Planned Parenthood, I got recruited by some folks in the Planned Parenthood Houston organization. Uh, I jumped at it because I saw them as sort of the vanguard of organizing. And as a Texan immigrant woman, I saw this as the intersection of all the things I'd been working on my whole career at that point. So it was probably my late 20s, early 30s when I started doing this work. Totally. And I'm curious, like from the then to now, how the landscape has shifted, obviously from like a legal perspective, like huge, but attitudes, like what have you seen in terms of how, you know, abortion rights and reproductive freedom in general was perceived then at the start of your work to now with what we're dealing with? Like, what does that shift look like? I mean, it's incredibly dramatic just in the last two years and less just since the last year and a half since jobs. You know, for a little context, when I started this work in Texas, we were, it was right after Planned Parenthood being Casey. So we were in the, we were in the era of target, like significant uptick of restrictions on abortion providers, right? So-called trap laws. So this was for folks who may not know all of the history of abortion rights. Sure, we had Roe v. Wade, but then we had Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which opened the door for so many more restrictions on abortion providers. And Texas was frankly the pioneer in doing some of the nastiest, craziest stuff, right? We had things like really nefarious things happen, like forcing corporate separation between clinics that provided birth control and clinics that provided abortion care. I mean, that's wild, right? You go to a Planned Parenthood, you want to have all the things. You go to an independent provider, you want someone to see you as your full spectrum of reproductive services. But what they did in Texas was make it burdensome and really, really hard for family planning centers to do all the things. So that was like the first big like blow to the movement in Texas and the provider ecosystem. And then it was things like famously, you know, mandatory ultrasounds. <clears throat> we were the first. We pioneered that in Texas. All the horrible things that caught on, it was like they did it first in Texas, 72-hour waiting periods. And we were doing that all in the face of a growing um, a movement that was able to peel off a lot of independence and even some so-called, you know, democratic affiliated, you know, women and leaders in this country because they had really demonized and stigmatized abortion, right? And they got a lot of folks feeling like, well, I'm personally against abortion. And they got this, they, they were able to be successful with this message that abortion shouldn't be used as birth control. You know, there shouldn't be abortion on demand. All of those tropes, all of those, you know, really crappy, stigmatizing political arguments are birthed out of this post-Planned Parenthood v. Casey era and post, 
you know, all of these crazy restrictions that were placed in all these states. And then you remember, I don't know how much of your audience knows about, you know, the murder of Dr. Tiller, Dr. George Tiller in Kansas, sort of the zenith of, you know, active terrorist protests of abortion clinics and real intimidation of doctors and providers, which you're seeing now in these abortion bans, right? It's not an accident that, you know, we'll talk about that in a minute, but it's not an accident that they're putting all these things to go after doctors. It's intended by design to depress the engagement of the medical community, right? Few and fewer doctors are getting this training or even doing this work. So that's the climate, you know, when I started this work 20 some odd years ago, that was the climate we were in. It was sort of the beginning of the the zenith of the really stigmatizing demonization of our movement, of our people, of our activism. And then, and it was really hard to explain uh, to f- friends in California and New York, like this is this is where this is the you know crucible of all the crazy tactics that are getting birthed. They're, it's happening in Texas, and then they're spreading it across the country. You're seeing yeah. how much you're willing to put up with <clears throat> the post Dobbs. It's just been. I, listen, I, I don't want anyone to ever misunderstand me. It's horrific what's happening in this country, but it is now penetrating the consciousness of all Americans, including independents totally. and Republicans. Why we needed Roe in the first place? Why we need abortion access? What kind of dystopian nightmare and climate we're creating when we don't have these services and this care and how so many of these so-called exceptions and things that they've designed to make folks feel like we have access when we don't, why they don't work and why they were always designed to fail. So it's just been Mm -hmm. a dramatic shift in public opinion for the worst reasons. Yeah. You know, it's hard to celebrate that, right? It's it's for terrible reasons. But I totally see what you're saying though, where it's like, in a weird way, it's like putting light and changing the narrative on like mm-hmm. what abortion is. And like, I totally. can even like say too personally, it's like, and I've always been super, super pro-choice, like no qualms about it. But I don't think I even understood like how like someone that is like having a miscarriage would like therefore need abortion medication and how that process worked because it just wasn't on my totally. radar. I, mean, I also just never had any pregnant friends. So just those, you know, well, sort of things, so just not in your sphere, you know? That's so important. One of the things we learned early in our research at, you know, Reproductive Freedom for All, formerly NARAL, aka Norwal, <laughs> is that you don't, most Americans don't think about abortion until they are pregnant or, you know, yeah. they have a partner or a family member who's pregnant. Mm-hmm. That's the first time they think about it. Right. And they might not ever think about it if they don't have any kind of issues with their pregnancy, but most pregnant people do because pregnancy is the most dangerous time in the health of most women and pregnant people's lives, right? So something, again, people don't think about it. So, oh, I'm so excited to get pregnant. Pregnancy is so beautiful. People don't say it's actually quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here's the ways it can really, you know, go haywire. So what you said is really important. If you've never been pregnant or you don't have very many friends or family who've been pregnant, which is increasingly the case, right, for a lot of younger people who are choosing yeah. not to be, it mm-hmm. feels like it's on the margins and you're not actively engaged in it. And then when folks hit you with, well, you know, we shouldn't have abortion as birth control and you shouldn't be able to abort on demand. It's like, maybe that's a reasonable thing. I don't know. When would I ever need that? Yeah. You know, I'm responsible. I take birth control. I'm okay. It's not until you're in it that you really mm-hmm. feel it. And that's always made it hard as a movement for us to yeah. fight these big public fights. Right? Right. That makes so much sense. And it's interesting too, but it's kind of like a double-edged sword at the same time where it's like, 
there's also now all these narratives because abortion is like a main topic in the political discourse. It's like now there's all these conversations that like can kind of be spun the other way of like full term abortions. I'm like, that's basically not just a labor. Not a birth. Yeah. Like it's not happening. It's just not, not real. So there's also those just like kind of like fake news uh, misinformation type narratives that are also dangerous that like can just be churned up because it's a political conversation and it helps you know the other side and whatever their argument is but to kind of also talk more about like current landscape and what's going on right now reproductive freedom overall has been attacked and we're also seeing the GOP kind of come for birth control now so absolutely kind of walk us through like what really is going on in that realm of things as well you know so this is really important the attacks of birth control were always part of the original plan you know abortion was sort of the main the easy boogeyman for the anti-abortion extremist movement, the evangelicals. It was really easy to make abortion the public issue, but it's always been about contraception. A couple of things that are important to note, you know, when you talk about life begins at conception and you, you have this, all this sort of misinformation, disinformation and fake science around conception, that's the, that's the underpinnings of the so-called personhood movement. What does that mean? This idea that it's a person, right? That this, at the time of conception, it's life and it's a person. If you extrapolate that, it means that IVF uh, shouldn't be allowed, right? Because you're using reproductive technologies and you're fertilizing, you know, eggs with sperm in a lab and you know, it, it goes to locking them up for years. <laughs> right. It goes to so many things that we now accept as medical advancements that have benefited the family planning world, right? Yeah. Like my decision, if when and how to have a family, might hinge on ability to get access to fertility treatments like IVF. They might be impacted by my taking, oh, plan B, right? Over the counter mm-hmm. birth control, I'm sorry, emergency contraception. And they truly believe if you follow this whole argument, they don't believe in contraception because just the act of contraception is stopping that personhood. Crazy. So they are, it's some really dark, creepy, messed up stuff, and it is embedded in their movement. You know, as recently as last cycle, election cycle, you know, we caught, you know, my brain just went blank, but the governor, <laughs> Brian Kemp, in, got in the Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp matchup for governor of Georgia. We caught him on the record saying absolutely he would consider something that would affect a ban on IVF. I mean, you catch them in private, they will admit and they know where that movement is going, even though the majority of Americans and the majority of Catholics and the majority of evangelicals support access to birth control and use it. Mm -hmm. Everybody uses it, right? Thanks, Obama. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, it's in the ACA now. We get, I used for a while, I used to joke every time I go to the pharmacy to get my birth control, I'll be like, thanks, Obama. Like, <laughs> yeah, I love you're that. a cost. But that was a big fight, right? Yeah. And the anti, anti-choice anti movement actually fought the contraceptive equity access part of the ACA. So this is not new. This has been going on for a long time. It manifests itself in cuts in funding to Title 10, the Title 10 program, which is the biggest federally funded contraception program in the country for family planning. It's manifested itself in multiple legislative efforts to cut access to abortion and birth control. And as recently as just this past year, you know, House Democrats have tried to pass multiple right to contraception bills and Republicans have voted them down. So 
It's really important going into the election cycle and looking at who you support to see really dig dig, dig deeper. Are they falling for these anti-contraception fights? And if you are truly anti-abortion, okay, uh, where are you on prevention? Where are you on comprehensive care? It's a totally illogical alliance to be anti-birth control on its face and an anti-abortion. You know, anti-abortion. But we all know it's actually really about, this is the important part, it's not about science, it's not about rational thinking, it's about the need for one party to exert power and control over women and pregnant yeah. people. And when you remember that, <laughs> and that's the underlying cause, it makes all of this much more easy to spot. But it's right. not intuitive, right? It's not intuitive. In the year of 2024, how is this happening? It's... It's happening because it's been the design of this movement for for decades. Totally. Yes. And I think that's one of the things that's really hard for people to understand, especially if they're new in the political world, of seeing like, no, like this was a plan. Like politics is a long game. And that's something we talk about yes. across all issues that mm -hmm. like whether it's good or bad, like it is a long game. And the fact that like this isn't something that just popped up yesterday, like the overturning of Roe v. Wade, like that was a plan. Like this was a very conscious decision yes. and map and same with like what we're seeing. And I, I think that's just hard to digest for people. And so, you know, with thinking about that, though, and sort of like a positive of the flip and looking at ballot measures, for example, that we're seeing pop up this year, which, my God, I have never spoken so much about ballot measures than the last few years. I'm like, oh, my God, let me get a tattoo. Like ballot and measures. Everyone learns like, so much about government. And this one's perfect yeah. for you guys. Like it's. Per yeah, yeah. How do you get a totally. constitutional amendment done? <laughs> yeah. Totally. And it's so interesting to see like which states like allow them, which states don't, like all in the different processes. How they allow them, what the different mm -hmm. rules. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating for sure. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm writing a book. It's fine. But I'm curious your perspective <laughs> on what those have the power to do. Like for someone yeah. that's not quite familiar with them, like what does a ballot measure at large accomplish? Yeah, you know, it depends is the answer. <laughs> so, you know, to highlight a couple of things, and then at, at some point, if we can go back to the row, long long game, the reverse row, yeah. I want to talk about that before we go, because I get a lot of questions about it, and I want to I want to dig in a little bit with you all about it. But the ballot measures, so depending on the state, it can be a citizen-driven, like petition gathering, like if you get enough signatures, you can go to the ballot, you can get on the ballot to change your state constitution. So what folks need to remember is there's across the country, there's a lot of state constitutions that had so-called trigger bans. So if Roe falls, if the federal government, government protection, if the federal constitutional protection goes away, our state law will get triggered. And that's why we saw so many legislatures rush to try to adjust and amend or run citizen-led campaigns to amend constitutions to take those bans out. So every state has a slightly different nuanced situation with their state constitution, their state laws. You have a place like California that didn't have a trigger ban, but said, you know what? We got to get ahead of the curve here because if there's a national ban, we don't want to be vulnerable. Although it's not really been tested yet if there was a national ban and a state constitutional protection, that would still be up to court's interpretation, right? And that's the big, it depends question. So there's multiple yeah. ways to get am amendments done to constitutions. In my home state of Texas, people keep calling me and asking me, why isn't Texas just going to the people? I'm like, well, because they can't. Because a ballot mm -hmm. initiative in Texas has to go through the legislature, and the legislature is so gerrymandered. They have a supermajority of Republicans that even as the state demographics are shifting, it's really going to be a long haul to flip the legislature. So we're not getting a ballot measure uh, in the legislature, through the legislature, any time soon in Texas. 
But in Florida, it's a citizen-led one, and we're making really good progress in Florida. The challenge is we don't have control of all the courts. So who interprets these, the language that's going on these measures, and who interprets the rules? It's the courts. And we've already seen that when extremists can't win by going to the people, they try to litigate, they try to change the language, they try to contest the rules, they try to change the rules, as we saw in Ohio. So it's really created a terrifying and stressful and confusing patchwork of how to actually make change. It's a simple argument to say, okay, Dobbs happened, Roe was struck, states have the rights, we should just get all the states to fix it. But when you think about all the different layers of how a state can fix it, even if the people want them to fix it, it's not that straightforward. The other thing I'll say is it's important to remember that the ballot initiatives all have to be tailored to the circumstances of the state. And what works and what one state supports and what the electorate of one state supports may not match what another state would support. So what you're seeing in like a California or even a Colorado is going to be much more progressive than even what we saw in Michigan and Ohio. And it's because we're working towards incremental change. It's frustrating and hard for a lot of us who are activists and advocates. We want all of it. We want to go for everything. But it's a way to at least open the door for then policymakers to come in and build on the ballot initiative. So in Michigan, the ballot initiative passed that just changed the constitutional conditions, right? Now the legislature has to come in and legislate on top of it. And we didn't get everything we wanted in the first round because in the Michigan House, we'd only won by one seat. So this is why the ballot initiatives aren't savior for abortion rights in the states, nor should Democrats or pro-choice or pro-reproductive freedom candidates assume that a ballot initiative means an easy road for them. They still have to make the compelling case to their voters that they're going to be a champion in addition to the ballot initiative and what they're going to do to realize the promise of it, right? So it's going to take a lot of voter education. Uh, but the good news is it's a motivating factor. Voters care about this. It makes the message simple. And it's going to continue to, I think, be a vote driver. And it crosses over to Republicans and independents, which is really yeah, good. Totally. Yeah. I was going to ask that too, just like yeah, elections post row and like how what we've seen in terms of just a huge rally it seems which has been great and I'm I'm just curious to kind of get that synopsis of you of like what these past few years since row um has been overturned have been like electorally but also like looking at this year as well like what we can maybe yeah there's still momentum yeah I'm straight off a big rally last night with the president the vice president the first lady the second gentleman in Virginia God, you know, if you told me 10 years ago, we'd be rallying with Joe Biden in Virginia on abortion, right. I'd have been like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, that makes, no, that makes no sense in my brain. <laughs> Look, I mean, we know this has not always been the easiest issue for a lot of our friends in the Democratic Party, particularly folks who are Catholic, right? Someone like Joe Biden, who's always had the right voting record, but has struggled personally with this issue. I've worked for several Catholic leaders who've struggled with it, even though they legislate the right way. Everything has shifted post-ops, right? Not just the dramatic public opinion, but the way that our policymakers have to talk about this. Because now, instead of thinking about how Roe was not enough and Roe was the floor, we've got to create protections above and beyond Roe, we are now in a defensive posture and we're trying to save our democracy and save our fundamental freedoms. And that is a catalyzing, galvanizing message and opportunity and policy fight across the party that also, as to our earlier point, 
is popular with independents and Republicans. I just saw a startling stat this morning that 67% of primary voters in New Hampshire, Republican primary voters, are opposed to a national ban on abortion. Which is wild because they voted for either Nikki Haley or Donald Trump, who are both for a national ban. So the cognitive dissonance is significant, and it's something Democrats really have to make clear. I spend almost every day talking about how Republicans, all of them, even the ones who pretend to be moderate, are for bans. So let's not let's not get it confused here. But, you know, the 2022 elections were so significant because they were the first major elections post Dobbs, right? And everybody's watching. Like, and now I keep getting the question. No, of course, we know how those went. And then 2023, well, you know, we're getting farther away from Dobbs. Maybe abortion won't continue to be salient. Well, that's not true. It's actually getting more salient. And what I keep trying to explain is, and I think your audience, and you're going to get this intuitively, the longer these bans are in place, the more horrific the stories are. Mm, It's actually getting more salient. The longer you live in a state or you live in a country with these bans, the more dystopian and crazy the stories are. You went from like Amanda Zorowski to Brittany Watts. Like what? She just had a miscarriage in her own bathroom and she was going to, she was going to court, it starts to clue folks in about the climate and you can't get away from it, right? It went from like once every couple of months to once a week, there's a horror story. It went from she almost died to sepsis to that young woman in Texas who did die. She died, right? Right. It's it's making it more and more compelling and it's even making Republicans and independents say, what are we doing here? Why Why are we trying to make this a national issue? Why can't we leave well enough alone? You know, so the the way that it's now impacting the election is, you know, even candidates who've got these past conflicts, like like our friend President Biden, did a massive rally last night where he stood in front of a massive sign that said "Restore Row." I mean, I know for many in our community, it's not enough, and I agree with them. It's just the floor. But we have to reestablish that floor to be able to build on it, right? To be able exactly. to build on other fundamental freedoms. Uh, and I think I've never seen this kind of unanimity across the Democratic Party on an issue. Cynically, mm-hmm. we can agree that maybe some of it is opportunistic, but that it's our job as advocates and your job as citizens to hold them accountable should they win on abortion. And the, all mm-hmm. signs indicate that this is going to be the issue that's going to be the driver of the election for Democrats. Yeah, totally. No, I I think the more the stories, more stories that come out. I mean, it's like even as these Republicans also to try and like get rid of like more. Te- oh my gosh, maternal mortality. Yes, that's such a tongue twister. For it that, is, you know, keep track of things. <laughs> it's like we still see it because we also with social media we have even more of a voice. Like we're telling each other and connecting the dots. Like, hey, this happened to me. Did this happen to you? In yeah. at least that line of communication happening, it's it's harder for them to tamp it down. Like you can get rid of your board, but we're still talking. So that's right. I think citizen, it's, citizen journalism, a social media, the podcasts that you're doing, like it's all how younger folks are sharing info. I'll also say the intersection in states with ha- that have terrible maternal health outcomes, don't have paid family leave, don't have childcare infrastructure and have abortion bans, it's like the Venn diagram is that. It's not yeah. this. It's not this. It's that. So mm-hmm. folks are figuring it out in their states. 
You're going to force me. You're totally. going to be a forced birth state, but you're not going to give me any resources to have a healthy pregnancy, take care of my family and take leave. It's crazy. You know, we don't, but that tells you again that it's about power and control. Yeah. Totally. And I think so there true. have been some Republicans that have tried to like save face from a messaging like, oh no, we're like, we're going to like extend like some offerings to moms and then they never do. And you're like, okay, well, great. Yeah. Like, what, no, like, and, and what I really need, what we really need are our friends in the press to do is call them out and hold them accountable. I recently saw, I think it was Marge, mm-hmm. Bren- Marge Brennan did an interview with Sarah Huckabee Sanders and she oh, went after that. her. Did you catch that? No, she no. went after her on this specific issue. I know you're saying you're pro-life, but in your state, maternal mortality is X and other states have expanded benefits past 60 days, but you capped it at 60 days. Why is that? And she mm-hmm. was like, I was like, please, more, more of that. this. More yeah, of that energy. This is the core thing. More of that energy, more of that line of inquiry. Yep. I mean, yeah. I'm preaching yeah. to the choir here. But that's <laughs> where we need. We It's a combination of like citizen activists, but the yes. press too. Like we need them asking the tough questions. It's so true. Yeah, there is, there is a hole there. Well, I'm also curious, like where are we seeing reproductive freedom and come, like showing up on the ballot this year? Whether yeah. it's statewide, obviously we have a federal election this year. Can you? There's some initiatives deeper? that are in play, and we don't know mm-hmm. yet if it's going to. But here's what you should watch for: Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, Montana, Missouri, I'm Montana, right? Montana, yes, Missouri I'm here for Montana. Love it. Yes, I'm here for Missouri, Florida, maybe Maryland. Although you know it'll be more like a California style. I'm, I live in Maryland. I'm all about it. Let's be pushing the envelope <laughs> as far as possible. Those are the ones I'm tracking. Uh, I'm sure I missed a couple. Please forgive me if I did. Uh, I'll okay. get you. We can get you guys a tracker. But there's a lot of good stuff happening in a lot of great states. I think Arizona is a big one because we have a chance to elect a U.S. senator, a new U.S. senator who will be for eliminating the filibuster to codify Roe. And that's a big, yeah. big deal. And that's been a barrier for us in Arizona, even though we had a Democrat senator mm-hmm. who a Democrat. I will not name because <laughs> we don't have enough time for that conversation. But we, we oh, yes. yeah, that is like a 10 episode series that we could do breaking down <laughs> so many different levels. Maybe this event sesh, you know, all the different yes. variables. But I do want to Maybe you need to check too. the show on the road and go to Arizona and just interview a bunch of ladies. I can connect you to some folks. <laughs> that is an Love idea. That. We may just do that. I do have one question <laughs> hopping back to the yeah. cognitive dissonance of it all. Because I know when we like saw the ballot measure pop up in Kentucky, for example, it's like oh people gosh. were like, okay, like, yeah, no, we're not with it. Like we want to not make sure or we want to make sure that like abortion isn't like nixed in the constitution. But then so many people still voted for Rand Paul. Like all this these is crazy. Important. This goes to the point I made. Well, this goes to the thing that we were just talking about in New Hampshire, 67% mm-hmm. of caucus goers. This goes back to why Democrats can't assume just because there's a ballot yep. initiative on the books that they're going to benefit from it. There has to be an, a, an actual explainer and a breakdown. Well, you have to remember about Kentucky, and you know this, but for your audience, that was an anti-abortion ballot initiative, and we were able to get Republicans to cross over and to kill it. That's a little different than a proactive ballot initiative where we're saying, fix the Constitution to protect this legal right. So there were probably a lot of Republicans who voted uh, with us in that state who don't really quite yet know how they feel about protecting the right 
but they don't they know they don't want to further ban it. That's a squishy universe of people. But Rand Paul decidedly did not focus his election on this and was able to kind of skate through. And he didn't have a strong, well-funded opponent. So this is part of the challenge. You need a strong, well-funded opposition to say, hey, like we're doing with Donald Trump, I'm going to call you on your bullshit. You know, you say you don't support a national ban, but just yesterday you were bragging about overturning Roe. You called it a miracle. You know, you are in bed with the anti-abortion movement. And we got to keep showing the receipts over and over again. Who was doing that in Kentucky to Rand Paul, right? You know, we we didn't really mount an aggressive campaign against him. And I'm not even faulting the Democrats for not doing that. It's not clear that we had that, that we had that opportunity, that cycle. But then look at Governor Andy Bashir. You know, he's not, we've known him for a long time. He's a, he's a good guy. He is not a raging lefty abortion on demand Democrat. He yeah. is quite moderate to conservative, actually, on abortion. But he brilliantly made his campaign, seeing the tea leaves, like seeing the results of that ballot initiative about abortion in a way that was comfortable for him. And it was about the exceptions, right? Mm-hmm. He made it all about Daniel Cameron wanting abortion with no exceptions, which was so extreme. Even Republicans and moderates in Kentucky didn't like that. And he put that really brave and courageous young woman uh, on the airwaves talking about how she was raped as a child by her stepfather. I mean, that's brutal stuff. And just yeah. two years ago, I don't know that many Democrats in a red state would feel comfortable doing that. But that ballot initiative in Kentucky softened the ground for that very important discussion and gave Andy Bashir a really clear path to win in a really tough year for Democrats, an off-year election. A Democrat who is mostly pro-choice won in a terribly red state. So there's a pathway, but that's how you do it. You got to link it. You got to yeah. really define the villain. Like yes. these guys are the guys who did it here, yeah. so I will fix it. You do yeah. that on top of the ballot initiative. That's a winning. That's a winning equation. Totally, it's like that connective tissue is so important. Yeah, and like who's going to protect your freedoms and like who's taking them away? Like paint that picture so distinctly. Right? That's right. So. And you also have to remember that most Americans are nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily know who did what, even though yeah. we think we know, everyone knows, they don't know. And that's right. not ignorance, that they have busy lives. Exactly. And that most of them don't like politicians. Mm-hmm. A lot, most sure. of them. So yeah. they're like, <laughs> oh, they're all bad. Are you really yeah. telling me this guy's better than that guy? So we have to keep drawing the contrast and telling not yes. only the personal stories of folks affected, but the actual hard hitting information about fact checking. Right. And telling, like, explainer who did what and how. Mm -hmm. No, we have to keep repeating it. A thousand percent. And I've been seeing this big narrative about, well, like the abortion ban started under Biden. So, like, didn't Biden do it? And, like, Mm -hmm. granted, that's a civic education gap as well. And, like, that's that's terrifying. yeah. Yeah. So, like, it's like they're attributing something that happened to the wrong person. And like I understand how if you and really meanwhile like Trump's it. over here like I did it <laughs> like you like people please give me I credit I did do it. it look how awesome I am <laughs> bragging about it it's such an important point you know I 
we have to spend the time doing the the really simple, not dumbed down, just elementary, you know, how it happened. This is the story of how Roe got overturned. 50 years, right? Year after year of conservative court appointments. This is why the presidency has always been about abortion, because it means who gets to appoint the Supreme Court. And they've Mm -hmm. been nominating and moving up these conservative justices through the system for eons to get to this point. And it's why this last, when people ask me, what did Joe Biden do to fix it? I'm like, well, he didn't have the Congress he needed to fix it, number one. So we got to get him reelected and give him his Congress. But also, he has nominated and confirmed with the Democrats in the Senate a record number of progressive judges. And this is the long game. This is how we get back our fundamental freedoms, is we have to take back the courts. It's why our organization started getting involved in court accountability early on, and we joined the court reform movement a couple of years ago. And we've endorsed expanding the court because we're at the point now where we know some of these justices are not old. We're not getting rid of them anytime soon. And we we have an ongoing crisis of democracy under their watch. So, but this is the whole, like, the other thing I get often that I wanted to come back to, and you you brought me back there, is why hasn't, why haven't Democrats restored Roe yet? Why did they wait so long? Like, okay, number one, not all Democrats, even when we had majorities, not all Democrats were pro-choice. Actually, we still have a handful in Congress who aren't. We've run pretty aggressive campaigns against them. And we have a handful that have shifted post-Dobbs. Like, you know, Bob Casey in Pennsylvania, who is, his father is the Casey at Planned Parenthood v. Casey. He's Mm -hmm. pretty famously anti-abortion, but even he had to say post-Dobbs, I always, I have to remember the context of my feelings were with Roe as the law. Now that Roe is gone, it shifted my mindset about what we need because we're in a different climate. Right. So we didn't have enough Democrats. We didn't have the majorities. And with Roe as the law of the land, a lot of Democrats were afraid to tackle this issue. I'll just call it. But like, now that we're post-Dobbs, it's made it very clear to folks. The final thing is we're going to have to have rules reform. We're not going to elect 60 pro-reproductive freedom Democrats to the Senate. But now, thanks to the smart fights by our friends of the democracy movement and the voting rights movement, you know, the last couple of cycles around voting rights, it's softened the ground and it's made the public argument about rules reform, which is Mm -hmm. really important because we're not going to do any of this without that. Yeah, totally. I feel like the theme of this episode is softening the ground because that is happening on so many different issues and that's so important. And really, A, underrated and underspoken about. So thank you for bringing light to that. I already know what the episode title is going to be, which is exciting. I love when I get that free (laughs) inspo. But to sort of close everything out and leave on an action that people can take for people that want to get involved, want to take action on all the various levers within this issue. What do you recommend? I also know you guys have a great action item page. Just hint, hint, wink, we wink. We do. <laughs> Text voter, V-O-T-E-R, to 59791. This will help you pledge to be a repro freedom voter with us this year. We need you to sign up, be a reproductive freedom voter, become part of our, you know, org. We promise not to overwhelm you with too much stuff, but it'll be pretty simple, digestible actions. And some of them will be partisan and some of them won't be because we are a C3, but we also have a 501C4 and we also have a 527, a PAC. So that means we got we get to endorse candidates like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and take candidates up and down the ticket. But we also do a lot of voter education, voter engagement. You know, we'll be putting out some really simple explainers for the next couple of days about Biden versus Trump. 
really simple explanation about what's going on in your state. In Arizona, we're at the table working on the ballot initiative. So our our work in Arizona is continuing the signature effort and the campaign education effort. We're at the table in Florida working on the ballot initiative signature collections there. So depending on what state you're in and depending on what the climate is in your state, we're going to have potentially different asks. But the uniform ask for everybody to get involved is to pledge to vote on reproductive freedom this November. If everyone who supports reproductive freedom votes on reproductive freedom, we will be able to pass a federal law to make abortion legal again in all 50 states. And gosh, I mean, when, don't you want to wake up mm-hmm. the day after the election in November and know, you know, they took 50 years to kill Roe, but we took two two and a half to get it back. And that will then give us the momentum for folks. I can already hear the folks because I'm with you. That's not enough. We need more than that. I agree. We need more than that. We're going to fix that. And then we're going to eliminate the Hyde Amendment uh, in the next cycle. We're going to build a momentum to eliminate restrictions on federal funds for abortion. We're going to we're going to protect contraception rights and access. We're going to fully fund Title 10. We got to show all of our friends that they can win on reproductive freedom. And then we got to push for everything we need. Yeah. And it's not just reproductive freedom. If we, if we can unlock that door, like voting rights, everything else, like it all comes from that. It all comes. I've been saying like a nerd that abortion can save democracy. And that's what I mean. Like we open the floodgates. Abortion is the tip of the spear. But mm-hmm. all of our other freedoms feed into our reproductive rights fight. It's the courts, it's voting rights, it's gerrymandering. It's all of them. It goes to gun violence prevention, the environment. Yeah. Once we show how we mobilize, there's so much more opportunity for us. So we just need mm-hmm. you to pledge to be a voter, pledge to be a reproductive voter. We're building out a really cool digital tool that's going to let you map all your friends and family to the voter file. Then you can find out who am I, you know, text chain is not voting and who I need to talk to. So that's going to be some cool stuff we're going to unveil in the next couple of months. Love that. Cannot wait for that tool. Oh my God. I can't even. Well, it's kind of like DL stitching on your friends. Like, yeah, you're posting all these memes, (laughs) but what are you doing? Yeah, literally time tap back Mm -hmm. in. Well, thank you so much. For coming on, this was amazing and also very fun, despite some of the scarier topics that we have to touch on, but I feel very hopeful, so thank you. Thank you for having me. This was really fun for me, too. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.